Good afternoon. Have you guys ever been surprised by contrasting reviews? Two different groups of people go to the same place and just have vastly different experiences. I assume, I'm guessing, that almost everybody here has gone to Yellowstone National Park and probably too many times to count. And most of the people that go to Yellowstone are forever impacted by the landscape. For example, Teddy Roosevelt once said, there can be nothing in the world more beautiful than Yosemite, the groves of giant sequoias and redwoods, or the canyon of the Colorado, or the canyon of the Yellowstone, the three Tetons. Our people should see to it that these are preserved for their children and their children's children forever with the majestic beauty unmarred. And that led him to found the national parks. Somebody named Terry Tempest Williams wrote this, I can tell that the greater Yellowstone from the Tetons to the Lamar Valley where wolves howl and grizzlies roam, they act as my spine, my range of memory that ties me to the landscape. And this is just all meant to document that many people that go to Yellowstone are forever impacted by its beauty, but not everybody because... Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the website Yelp, but people can go on Yelp and they can leave reviews of any restaurant or place that they go. And so these are some negative uh, Yellowstone reviews from Yelp. One reviewer in 2010 said, I couldn't wait to get back to New York from this uncivilized wilderness. It's like a bigger vision of Central Park, but with bears. There's no Starbucks for 100 miles in any direction. The only things that even reminded me of New York were the rotten egg stench from the steam vents and the overwhelming presence of international tourists. Man, go back to New York. All right. Another Yelp reviewer from 2014 said, apparently mid-September counts as the off-season. So all the activities were closed, the food options were extremely limited, the lodging was awful, and let's be honest, if you've seen one geyser, you've seen them all. <laughs> and a final example, a Yelp reviewer from 2013 talking about Yellowstone said, I hated Yellowstone. The problem is that it's kind of dull. The dirt is poor quality. The only tree that grows is an ugly one called a lone pine. When we were there, you would see 50 cars pulled over so people could take turns looking at a bear through a spotting scope. So this just establishes an interesting contrast. Sometimes people can have vastly different experiences even when they visit or they encounter the same place. This is true in the Bible as well. And this afternoon we're going to study a passage in the book of Hebrews where people experience the same thing, the presence of God on a mountain. The last six weeks, this makes the sixth week that we've been studying different places where the authors of the Bible use mountains to teach us about God. So let's wrap up our series this afternoon with a look uh, at the passage that was just read to us from Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. And as we do, I think you'll see somewhat of a replay from this introduction from varying experiences at Yellowstone. Because according to this passage in Hebrews, there's a way to approach God that's fearful and unsettling and shakable. And there's another way to approach God that's exhilarating and transformative. So let's study this passage uh, just in two quick parts. You can follow along in the outline in your bulletin. Let's study this passage, uh, number one, by focusing on the unpleasant 
way to approach God. Uh, the author of Hebrews is talking about, he's referring to something uh, back in the Old Testament. There's an unpleasant way to approach God, and it's a mindset or, or, or a spiritual attitude that we all revert back to from time to time, so it's still very relevant to us today. Then in section 2, let's look at the encouragement from this passage on the better way to approach God, the invitation to Mount Zion. Would you allow me to pray for us very briefly? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for all the wisdom and insight within this passage. And we just pray that uh, in the next 15 or 20 minutes that you would draw us into that guidance and wisdom and inspire us to just understand you uh, in new and more clear ways. Amen. So let's start in section 1 as we dive into Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, and let's, uh, let's just focus on three things from Hebrews 12 uh, Starting in verse 18, let's talk about the context so we kind of understand how this passage was originally laid out. Uh, let's talk about the tone, because when we skip over the tone of a Bible passage, we're, off, we're often going to miss out on the meaning. Uh, and let's talk about the key idea. So context. Uh, this passage here in uh, Hebrews 12, 18, starts off by talking about the unpleasant way to approach God. Uh, a little bit more about Hebrews. Uh, it's probably the first full sermon that we have a record of. Most of the books of the New Testament are letters that were circulated among churches at that time. Uh, they probably didn't even have pastors yet at that time. So these letters were often read uh, during worship services. Uh, but somewhere along the line, sermons sprung up. And uh, many scholars think that Hebrews is the first full sermon that we have on record. Uh, and when we get to uh, this passage here in verses uh, 18 to 29, it's, it's actually like the climax or the key, the key emphasis of the entire book of Hebrews. It's talking about how all these things in the Old Testament were meant to point us to what Jesus would come to do for us years and centuries later. Uh, the author is retelling a specific event, and the specific event that's being talked about in our passage read to us by the worship team here in Hebrews is back when the Israelites received the Ten Commandments, back on Mount Sinai, all the way back in Exodus 19. So since uh, the author of Hebrews is talking about a specific event, let me just highlight what's happening in this encounter, in this episode that's being referenced here in Hebrews. So listen to uh, this passage from Exodus 19, 10 to 13. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today. That means to, to make yourselves pure and holy. Have them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of his people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the trumpet sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. And then listen to how it continues in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire and the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered. 
The Lord descended to the top of the Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and then they will perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. So that is the original story or episode that this passage in Hebrews is referring to. And this scene on Mount Sinai is referring to it's, it's a metaphor to approaching God through the law. It's right when the Ten Commandments were given. It's a metaphor for approaching God through our works or through our deeds or through comparing ourselves to others. Let me draw us kind of into that concept and let me ask the question, why were the Israelites so afraid? Only three months earlier, they were delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They followed God through the wilderness and now God has told them to meet him on his holy mountain, and they're terrified. They're terrified, and I want to ask you guys to just spend a minute thinking about what was it that encountering the presence of God left them so shaken and unsettled? And I would suggest it's this. We all look past our own sin and self-defeating behaviors in the same way. We all have the same trick. We think about how bad we are and we think, well, at least I'm not as bad as him. At least I'm not as bad as her. Right? We all live comparatively to others. But then when we comprehend or encounter God's holiness, that trick doesn't work anymore, does it? Because God is holy, God is perfect, God is without blemish. And so we can go through most of life comparing ourselves to others and we can always find at least one person that's more miserable than us, right? But then, when, when we think about being in the presence of a perfect God, it, it shakes us. It unsettles us. It freaks us out. And that's exactly what's happening here in Exodus 19. And that's exactly the moment that the writer of Hebrews is referring to in today's passage. I think we have to establish the tone here, so I'll give you guys two options to think about what, what this passage is meant to make us feel. Have you guys ever gone to Yellowstone and you just, you just get to those fields where the smoke comes up and it's really eerie and you, you smell the sulfur and there's no animals because everything there is dead and you just think that you're in some prehistoric wasteland? That's sort of what it would have been like to encounter God on the holy mountain. That no animals are even allowed to go onto it or they'll fall over dead. That's, that's the feeling that this story is meant to conjure. Uh, I grew up as a kid in the 80s and my parents worked and I would come home and I would turn on MTV and I would watch music videos. That's how I was raised. Wasn't the best way to raise a kid. Uh, but I remember heavy metal videos in the 1980s uh, it was always creepy. There was always this dry ice. There was always like druids walking by in the background and uh, people were blowing these horns and it was always just kind of, they were always just going for this kind of creepy encounter with some otherworldly being. That's what they were going for. And that's sort of the tone of Exodus 19 and Hebrews 12. Meeting God on a holy mountain makes the Israelites feel exposed for their own lack of holiness. And this is depicted with fire and darkness and animals falling dead and trumpet blasts and just kind of an eerie, unsettling feeling. So that is the wrong way to approach God. That's approaching God on Mount Sinai. The key idea here from Hebrews 12, 18 to 21, 
Let's read that again. Hebrews 12, 18 to 21, as we focus in on the main idea of the first part of this passage, is that you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire, darkness, gloom, and storm, and a trumpet blast and a voice speaking words to those who heard it. They begged that no further word would be spoken because they could not bear what was commanded. The sight was so terrifying that even Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. So Hebrews, our passage in Hebrews is sort of making this metaphor that uh, if, if, if we go before God and we're judged on our merit or our works or our obedience, it leaves us shaken. It leaves us unsettled. Let me ask you guys some reflective questions to just think about silently to yourself. When you're deeply honest with yourself, maybe as you go to bed at night, maybe as you drive silently in your car, again, this is, this is just silently to yourself. When you think about your worth or your uniqueness in comparison to others, what makes you special, what makes you better, what do you make the basis of your value or your standing? I think there's a couple different ways that we do this. I'm talking about secular and humanistic and inferior ways to find our self-worth. I think some people think to themselves, you know what? I'm really healthy and active and attractive for my age. When we're in our 20s, we're just like, I'm really healthy, active, and attractive. And then after that, we're like, for my age, right? At least that's true for me. Another way that people find their value is they say, you know, I've done really well in business. I've raised a good family. I no longer have to depend on anyone. Is that a big sky mentality or what? Sometimes people that maybe don't have margin and, and to, to lean on, they might find their self-worth and justification to others this way. You know what? I've traveled a lot. I've got a great temperament. I've had a lot of adventures and experiences, and that just makes me more interesting than the average person. I'm, I'm a good conversationalist. I'm really cool. There's some people that have based their self-identity on that. And maybe there's others that say, well, I belong to a church and I'm charitable and I'm very helpful to others. I'm benevolent. My parents are proud of me. And these are all ways that people base their self-worth. But what this passage in Hebrews is telling us is that that is a shakeable identity. Because the truth is, eventually you're going to drop your kid off at daycare and some other mom is going to be way hotter, right? Or, or you're going to say, I've got a pretty good body for a dad and then some dude's going to move in next door who's just ripped, you know? Um, you're going to be really proud of your, accomplishes, your accomplishments in business, but living in Big Sky, there's a chance that your neighbors on both sides made way more than you ever did. Maybe you're the coolest person you know until you meet somebody who's cooler than you, right? The list goes on and on. I read this really interesting story in a book about the history of Saturday Night Live, and this happened in the early 1990s, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with the comedian Chris Farley, but he really liked this girl, and he kept asking her out, and she, this is a true story according to the book, and he kept asking her out, and she wasn't interested. So the comedian Chris Farley went to one of his friends, and he said, I'm not going to stop asking out this girl because I know deep down she's never going to find anybody who's funnier and more charming and more famous than I am. And this friend turned to Chris Farley and he said, I got bad news for you. The other guy that she's interested in is Steve Martin. 
right? Who's funnier, more charming, and more famous than Chris Farley. And so the problem with the shakable identity is that eventually it's going to get shaken. When you compare yourself to others, eventually there's going to be somebody that's better at those things than you are. And the real heart of this passage is that when that's your approach to God, that you're just better than other people, eventually in the presence of a holy God, when we comprehend God's perfection, it's a scary place to be when we finally come to terms with with how sinful and wicked we can be at times. Um, Well, this passage moves us. It's really meant to contrast two mountains. It's meant to contrast this place in the Old Testament where people with a shakable identity come before a holy God and they're just terrified. And then it goes on to talk about Mount Zion, which is another mountaintop experience with God. Mount Zion is actually a metaphor or, or maybe a literal place, the mountaintop city of heaven, the New Jerusalem, where Christians will one day encounter God. So the, the, the author of, of Hebrews is contrasting this unpleasant and unsettling way to approach God through a flawed self-identity, through thinking that we're just better at performing or that we're just better than others. And, and he's contra- they're contrasting that wrongful approach to God with this beautiful passage on approaching God on the mountain of Mount Zion. So listen to what it says here in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. It says, But you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So remember in the intro, there were people that went to Yellowstone and they loved it and they were forever impacted. And there were people that went to Yellowstone and they hated it. They just wanted a cup of Starbucks. What the writer of Hebrews is saying in this sermon is there's people that approach God through, through their merit and through their deeds and through their works and through their belief that they've got it all together. But we all have those moments in life where we realize, where we're honest, that we don't have it together and that we have done terrible things. And that's what's so, that's, that's the shaken kingdom, to go before a holy God thinking that we're good enough. And that's contrasted in a, such an encouraging way here in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, that says there's a better way. The Bible It diagnoses the worst things in us, but it never ends there. It always does that to just kind of get us in the right mood to hear the good news. And the good news here is that we are all invited to claim our inheritance on Mount Zion, the holy city of God. And the good news is that it's unshakable because it's not based on anything that we're responsible for doing. Uh, It tells us that we can approach God through the blood, the shed blood, of Christ. One of my favorite writers, I, I mentioned him a couple weeks ago, uh, he's just really great at focusing in on this specific idea that we are invited to Mount Zion and that we are called to experience fellowship with God in heaven, not because of what we've done, but through faith in what Jesus Christ has done in his work, in his death, in his resurrection. So listen to three quick quotes from the writer Brendan Manning about how it is that we access Mount Zion, how it is that a believer enters into heaven. The first quote is this, The gospel declares that no matter how dutiful or prayerful we are, we still can't save ourselves. 
And what Jesus did was sufficient. The next quote says this, Grace, God's grace calls out, You're not just a disillusioned old man who may die soon, or a middle-aged woman stuck in a job that you desperately want to get out of, or a young person feeling that your enthusiasm and fire in your belly is starting to grow cold. You may be insecure, inadequate, mistaken, or pot-bellied, and death and panic and depression and disillusionment might be near you, but you're not just that. You're accepted. Never confuse your perception of yourself with the mystery that you are really loved and accepted by Jesus Christ. And the final quote says this, The sinners to whom Jesus directed his ministry in Scripture were not those who skipped morning devotions or Sunday church. His ministry was to those whose society considered really bad, real sinners. They had done nothing to merit salvation, yet they opened themselves up to the gift that was offered to them. On the other hand, the self-righteous placed their trust in the works of the law and closed their hearts to the message of grace. So the real key idea of Hebrews 12 and, and really the key idea to the whole book of Hebrews is that the blood of Jesus has satisfied the shaking judgment of God that's terrifying to those that don't have that. It's their identity and their invitation. But, but it's satisfying in a way that invites us to Mount Zion instead of Mount Sinai. The key, of course, being Hebrews 12, 24 that tells us that it's all because of the blood of Jesus. And without getting overly theological, uh, all throughout the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, it tells us that, that Jesus Christ died, a sin, he, he lived a sinless life, and when he died, he faced judgment before a holy God. And because there was no sin within him, he passed that judgment, and now he takes he takes the place in our judgment one day when we go before God. In other words, our invitation to encounter God on Mount Zion, it's not because of anything that we do or anything that we have to hold together. It's because of what Jesus Christ did and then extended to us. I think a helpful illustration to that comes from two experiences that I've had here in Big Sky. My first couple of months here last summer, um, I was staying in uh, the beautiful cabin of a congregational member uh, up on Jack Creek Road. And when you get past the gate on Jack Creek Road, uh, there's security because they're privately owned houses. It's a privately owned road. And without fail, every day and sometimes twice a day, the security would find me and pull me over and make me get out of the car and make me show them my ID because, let's just be honest, like my car was kind of a giveaway <laughs> that I don't have a million-dollar home on a million-dollar lot. I didn't belong there. I looked like a trespasser. I wasn't supposed to be there. Um, but then a couple months later, we got invited to go with some friends up to Moonlight Basin. And I felt, I still had that feeling in my stomach. Like, are those same guys going to grab me? Are those same guys going to see my car in the parking lot? Are, are, are my kids going to, you know, not know the rich person handshake and we're going to be exposed and we're going to get kicked out of here? But it was incredible. I mean, if you guys have never been up there, you have no idea what kind of luxury exists for anybody who's a member or anybody who's been invited by a member. And of course, we were accepted and welcomed because we were there with a member. It made all the difference in the world. And so the contrast between the two mountains in Hebrews 12 is that the first mountain is, it, it, anybody can be there who's perfect. 
Anybody can be there who measures up. Anybody can be there that equals the perfection of God. When anybody that falls short of that should feel shaken, they should feel judged, they should feel threatened. Uh, but the invitation to Mount Zion is that we're there with a member. We're there because of the invitation of somebody who belongs. We're there on the invitation of Jesus Christ who passed the judgment of a righteous God and tells us that we don't have to live a shaken life anymore. We don't have to approach God through the facade that we've got it all together and that we're good people. The final thing that I want to conclude with is this other idea that's kind of buried in this passage today, and it's, it's that we all need to embrace our inheritance. Our inheritance is that we are invited to be members at Mount Zion. We are invited to live for eternity in the presence of God. Not because we're moral, not because we're better than others, not because we give money to church, not because we have great church attendance, but because Jesus Christ has extended us the invitation. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but uh, birthrights were a little bit different in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they didn't split up the family wealth like a lot of people do today. Um, you guys might find yourself in a situation where you're planning out your estate, and it would be a fairly typical thing to spread out your assets evenly among your favorite charities and your children. But they didn't do that in the ancient world because that would spread out the wealth so much that none of the children would really carry on the wealth of the parents. So fair or not, they gave all of the inheritance to the firstborn. And then kids two, three, four, five, like they were, they were left on their own. And that was the way that the, the family wealth could exist in its entirety. So a little bit earlier on in Hebrews 12, 16 to 17, it, it brings up the example of Esau. And I don't know if you guys remember that story in the Old Testament. But Esau is out hunting and he comes back and he's so hungry that he foolishly sells his birthright as the firstborn to his brother for a bowl of soup because that's how hungry he was. And so when that's referenced in today's passage in Hebrews, the, guy, the person giving this sermon is saying, only a fool would give up their birthright. Only a fool would give up such a great birthright. And that's what, of course, we're supposed to contemplate because our birthright is that invitation through Jesus Christ to live with God forever on Mount Zion. And it's unshakable. It's so much better than the way that we typically approach God, trying to make a case that we deserve it. We're just a little bit better than anybody else. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and wrap up our service with uh, a few worship songs. Now what I could do at this point is I could try to uh, articulate what's our rightful response to this inheritance. If our inheritance as believers is this invitation to the holy mountain of God for eternity, I could try to apply that to all of you and, and what your response to that should be. But what I'd like to do instead is ask you to ask yourself the question during this final song or two. If you are invited to dwell with God without merit and not because of anything that you've done, if God's love and favor is on you as a believer because of the work of Jesus Christ, how then should we treat those in our lives that don't merit our love or attention? And let's think about that response to the gospel as we conclude with this final song or two.